and uh, welcome to a new series of the weekly Parsha lectures. And uh, this uh, week, we actually start the Torah from the beginning again. We're going to start over from Bereshit Genesis. Okay, so this week's uh, lecture is called Don't Live Cluelessly. Now, modern issue to be dealt with, as we always start. So the origin of the proverb, ignorance is bliss, is in Thomas Gary's poem, Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eton College in the year 1742. The quote goes in that poem, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. Now, my teachers, however, would add but two words to the proverb. Ignorance is a fool's bliss. Now, to believe that ignorance is bliss is to believe that we cannot handle the truth. Even more so, it is to believe that God has brought us knowledge of something that we can do nothing about. Not for the world around us, nor for the world within us. This goes in contrast to the teachings of the great and holy Baal Shem Tov, who teaches that everything one sees and hears is to serve as a lesson for them in their lives, and even more so, is a knowledge brought to them so that they can do something about it. Thus, he who revels in ignorance is one who flees from responsibility and accountability. While in truth, there is no greater bliss and the feeling of deep contentment in knowing that we have lived up to our responsibility with the knowledge of a truth that God brought to us. However, according to Kabbalah and Hasidis, God created the world precisely with a bliss of ignorance. And it is our purpose to overcome this fool's bliss and search out the truth and to live by it. This lecture is based primarily on a mimer, a mystical teaching the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbat in 1969, exploring the deeper dimension of how God created the universe and the purpose behind why God did it so. Okay, let's get into some introductions. First introductions is getting beyond coincidence. They tell a story of a person running late to a very important job interview, driving through the parking lot, frantically looking for an open spot to park in. Desperately, he calls out to God, God, please, I need this job. Please open up a parking spot for me. Lo and behold, someone pulls out of a parking spot right before him to which he immediately responds with, Never mind God, I found one. Coincidence, this is a quote, Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous, so says Albert Einstein. And if we are to have a true and tangible relationship with God, true enough and tangible enough to carry us through all the ups and downs in life, we are going to need to make sure that God isn't ever anonymous in our lives. Another introduction. 
So as an introduction to the mystical concept that we are going to explore in this lecture, we are going to need to explain the two most used names of God in our blessing and prayers. So God has seven names, some have ten names, and the two most used ones is what we call Havaya and Elohim. Allow me to explain. Havaya, this is the ineffable tetragrammaton name of God, which we do not presently know its pronunciation. It was known and used up, in the, up to the times of the Second Temple, and even then it was not taught publicly to the masses. Today, when in prayer and in Torah reading we come across the name, we pronounce it as A-do-nai. Now, I broke that into three pieces so that I don't say God's name in vain. That's the name we're talking about. It's spelled with a Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey. In the works of Kabbalah and Hasidis, we refer to it as the name of Havaya. Now, being that in prayers and in making blessings, we need to know the meaning of the words we say, Therefore, the Code of Jewish Law gives us its clear definition, the name of God, which we use in prayers and in blessings. And it says as follows, I quote, Concentrate on the yud Hey, the ineffable tetragrammaton, that, and here's the definition, was, is, and will be. And then, when one mentions Elohim, concentrate on that, he is strength, Master of wherewithal and master of the powers of all. Okay, so there you have the two halachic legal definitions for the two names of God, the Havaya name and the Elohim name. Now, simply speaking, within the four letters of the ineffable Tetragonotin, Yud Hey, Vav Hey, you have the words Haya, which means was. Hoveh, which means is, and yiyeh, which, mean, which means will be. I just, I put a note here, just that you know that the letters yud Hey vav Hey do not spell out the word yiyeh. However, the great sage Magin Avram, he quotes from the Talmud that sometimes we find the verses use the letter Vav and Yud interchangeably which if you interchange the Vav for a Yud, you'll have yud hey yud hey, which means Yiyeh, which means will be. Now, the emphasis here is that God transcends above time, meaning that God is above and beyond any constraints and properties that rule over all creations, namely time and space. This name refers on the Kabbalistic level to the infinite circular encompassing light. And the, the emphasis I made on the word circular is because when we use the word circular, it means there is no top, there is no bottom, there is no past, present, and future. However, the name Elohim refers to the finite linear permeating light, which through the process of the great contraction, manifested itself in the logical, finite process of the laws of nature. Thus, we find the numerical value of the name Elohim, Aleph, Lamed, He, Yud, Mem. 
Those letters are the numerical value of 1, 30, 5, 10, 40, total of 86, is equal to the word in Hebrew for the nature, which is ha-teva, hey, tet, vet, ayin, numerical value 5, 9, 2, 70, again 86. Because this is the name of God, the Elohim name, which refers to the divine light that creates and vivifies all of creation. In a finite matter of the evolution of cause and effect, or in the words of Kabbalah, cause and caused. Now, let us take this one step further. The name Havaya, which we said is Hayahovegiyeh, was, is, and will be, is also defined from the word mehave, which means to bring into existence something from nothing. Now, the power of true creation, which lies only in the power of the omnipotent essence of God, is ex nihilo, something from nothing. Why? Because everything, even the infinite light, is an existence and thus can only bring something from something, known as formation, to bring forth a form from a mass. However, to bring forth a something from nothing, a mass from nothingness, can only come from the essence of God, who was, is, and always will be, from who all comes forth into existence. Now, it's getting a little mystical, but for those of you who've been around the block with me, it'll all make tangible, practical sense. However, were the universe to be created directly from this omnipotence of Havaya, the infinite circular light, then the universe would be infinite, with each creation within it being infinite. God's desire, however, is to have a finite world with finite mortal beings. Thus, I want to take you to a verse in Psalms that reads as follows. For a sun and a shield is Havaya Elohim. Kabbalah explains that verse to mean that Elohim serves as a covering shield to the omnipotence of Havaya, so that Havaya's power of bringing into existence shines only through the finite shield of Elohim, creating and vivifying a finite world of finite mortal beings. I'm going to pause here for a moment just to give a little more clarity. So if we say that the sun's light is colorless, however, when you have a stained glass window, and the light shines through the stained glass window, suddenly the colorless sunlight that shines through the red piece of glass has a red ray. The green piece of glass, a green ray. So too, the shield of Elohim serves as, so to speak, a transformer of colored finite colored glass to the infinite colorless light of Havaya. And thus when it shines through, now every light has definition and finite description from which will come forth finite creations.
Okay. This is why, this is an interesting thing you're about to hear. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, the name Havaya refer, refers to the emanation of kindness, which Kabbalistically means revelation, while the name Elohim refers to the emanation of strength, which in Kabbalah means strictness, justice, concealment. Now that we have what is understanding to the Kabbalah behind these primary two names of God, we can point out something unbelievable in the story of Genesis in the beginning of the Torah. Throughout the entire process of Genesis, the entire six days of creation, we find only the name Elohim. In the beginning, let's quote, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Let's go to all the other creations. Vayomer Elohim, and Elohim said, let there be light, let there go forth. Always the name Elohim. If you want to know exactly, there are 32 times the name Elohim in the process of creation. And as a footnote, 32 is a mystical number for the pathways of wisdom. There's different numbers for different concepts. There's 50 gateways of understanding, but there are 32 pathways of wisdom. Wisdom is the top of the linear light. It is the first of the 10 emanations. Thus, we have the 32 names of Elohim, which is all about concealment, which is about the finite linear light. Now, interesting enough, it is only at the very end, after we finish talking about the creation, later on in chapter 2 in Genesis, that we have the verse, on the day that Havaya Elohim made earth and heaven. Suddenly we have for the first time associated the name Havaya with creation. Now Rashi, Rab Shlomo Yitzchaki, famous classic 11th century um, commentator in France, he writes as follows, and I quote, But it does not say on the words, Bereshit bara Elohim, and Elohim created. He doesn't say of Havaya's creation of, but rather it only says Elohim. Why? For in the beginning it was his intention to create it with the divine standard of justice, Elohim. But he perceived that the world would not endure, so he preceded it with the divine standard of mercy, Havaya allowing it with the divine standard of justice, Elohim. And this is the reason it is written on the day of the Havaya Elohim made earth and heaven. So in the beginning you only have the Elohim name. That was God's original intention. And then later on because he saw that creation would not endure, so he added on the revelation of Havaya. Let's see what's going on here because immediately the question here begs to be asked why would God the benevolent one who does good have wanted to have the world created only through Elohim 
the divine standard of justice. There must be a benevolent purpose and reason for this. However, now we understand that God wants a universe to have all the universe functioning through the concealment of that verse in Psalms. For a sun and a shield is a vayelokim, through which there would be no forceful imposition of any revelation of Havaya to impede upon man's absolute power of freedom of choice. That's the purpose for the concealment. However, being that he perceived that the world would not endure, so he preceded it with the divine standard of mercy, Havaya. Now, let's step away from the Kabbalah for a moment and explain this teaching of Rashi in a very practical sense. Our sages explain that God allowed for the miracles brought about through the saintly and righteous sages throughout the generations which would help us in finding faith in God. So when there's no miracles and all there is is the process of of um, nature, right, with a mighty, uh, you know, control, abuse, and eat up the this the the weak. So therefore, it would be difficult eventually to actually find faith in God. So therefore, God allows for the miracles that the righteous perform. For example, Elijah the prophet on Mount Carmel, when so many Jews succumbed to the idol worship of an idol called Baal, he performed a miracle in order to show the people that there is only one God. So through the miracle, he returned faith back to the Jewish people, who then stopped worshipping the Baal and returned to the Holy Temple and worshipped only God. And so too it is throughout all the generations, up to our present generations, the great miracles that were performed by our Rebbes and all the righteous, saintly people. Now, one more introduction, and then we'll get into the class. So, this week, this Shabbat, we have a very special Haftorah. Why? Because this Shabbat is the day before Rosh Chodesh, the new month. Now, on any Shabbat, which is the day before Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of a new Jewish calendar month, we read a specific Haftorah from the book of Samuels. And the opening verse, it's called Machar Chodesh, because the opening verse talks about how Jonathan told David, tomorrow is the new moon. Now, it's an amazing story about the bond and loyalty between Jonathan and David as Jonathan protects David and helps him get away before his father, Jonathan's father, King Saul, could kill David. Now, the opening verse reads, And Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be remembered, for your seat will be vacant. Backstory. So, as a son-in-law, King David would eat, it wasn't King David then, he was David, would eat at the table of King Saul, together with Jonathan and the family. Now, the Rosh Chodesh meal, what was planned was that King David would not show up. Thus, his seat would be vacant. Thus, he would be remembered, meaning that, Jonathan, that King Saul would ask about him. What's really interesting is that the root of the word used for vacant, and the root of the word used for remembered 
is the same. Vinifkadita kiyepoke, from the same root word of poke. Now, how can antonyms really be from the same root? Remembered and vacant. They're like antonyms. To be or not to be. So, there's a very interesting teaching here. Why both those antonyms come from the same root. Now, additionally, I want to share with you. The mystical reason for reading this Haftorah on a Shabbat, the day before Rosh Chodesh, is not because the story happens to be take place on the day before Rosh Chodesh. It's far deeper than that. Deeper in the sense that the entire process of Rosh Chodesh is that on the day before Rosh Chodesh, the moon is vacant, total darkness, no light. And then the next day becomes the new moon, the birth of the new moon, that sliver of light. Thus, there's a deeper connection between the vacant and the remembered. Let's even take this one step more deeper, deeper and mystical, and more mystical and deeper. And that is that King David in the works of Kabbalah represents the moon. Jonathan represents the sun. And thus we have a very mystical conversation taking place here between the vacant of the moon receiving, being remembered by the light of the sun to reflect off of it. Okay, and now let us begin the lecture. I'm going to share with you briefly the mystical concepts. Um, we're going to talk about the three mystical meanings of the first word of the Torah, Bereshit. We're going to talk about the story of King Talmai and the 70 sages. We're going to talk about the Baal Shem Tov's teaching on the opening three words of the Torah. We're going to talk about the power of wine. And then lastly, we're going to close it up with the deeper meaning of the Machar Chodesh. The story of tomorrow will be the new moon. Okay, let's start. The three mystical meanings of Bereshit. Upon the first word of the Torah, Bereshit, we have three interpretations. One is by... Targum um, Onkelis. Targum Onkelis says the word Bereshit, he, he defines it and translates it as the word Kadmon, primordial. In Kabbalah, this refers to the supernal crown. Thus, the word Bereshit, the prefix Bet can mean with or in or by. So let's read it as with. With the supernal crown, through the supernal crown, God created the heavens and the earth. There's another interpretation, translation of the Torah, written by a great sage called Yonas and Ben Uziel. And in his translation, he says the word reshit means wisdom. Bechachmisa. And reshit, with wisdom, God created the heaven and the earth. Then there's a third interpretation that comes from the Zohar, which it breaks the word Bereshit into two words, Barashis, which means created six. And what it means is that according to the Zohar, the world, God created the world through the six male emotion emanations. And by the way, I'm not going to get into the detail of this teaching of the Zohar, but it's really detailed. 
For example, the first emotion of a nation is kindness, revelation. Thus, you have the creation of light. The second day is the is the emanation of justice and concealment and boundaries. Thus, you have the separation between the upper waters and the lower waters. Jump to the end. On the sixth day, you have the emanation of foundation. Thus, was the human being created, the foundation of all of creation. And then on the seventh day, which is the feminine mystique, which is kingship, you have the regality of Shabbat. So we have three opinions on the word Bereshit, which on a mystical level is really defining to us on which level of divinity did God use of the infinite light in order to create the universe, to create the world. Thus, when the verse sta states Bereshit, bar, bar Elohim, right? Bereshit Elohim created, and we explain that Elohim is the shield that conceals the Havaya within. We speak of three different levels of concealment. Did Elohim conceal the supernal crown? Did it conceal the emanation of wisdom? Or did it conceal the emanation of the six male emotions? Now, the answer, of course, is yes, yes, and yes. All different levels, which is going to explain why there are three different types of service to God. Because we have to break through all three concealments, as we'll soon see. So we have the service of Torah study. We have the service of observing the mitzvot. And we have the service of prayers. Now, originally, the prayers really was all about the sacrifices, the offerings that were brought in the Holy Temple, which today, in its place, we have prayers. Now, this is these three levels of service, these three different types of services, is all for one purpose. And that is in order to transform the opaqueness of the concealments and make Elohim transparent to Havaya and bringing the Havaya illumination into the Elohim, revealing the hand of God within his glove of Mother Nature. Okay, so now let's go ahead and explain. I want to share with you a story in the Talmud, and the king is called Talmai. In English, it's called Potelmi, the Egyptian king, uh, it talks about how he gathered 70 sages in the Talmud in, in Megillah, page 9, side A, it says 72. But we talk about the 70 sages and he placed them each in a separate room, ordering them each. He didn't forewarn them what he wants from them. Then telling them, I want you each to translate the entire Torah. And by doing this, he figured that they can't conspire what to change and what not to change. And therefore, he knew that each one would not know that the other one is going to give the real translation. And thus, he too will give the true, true translation. And thus, he felt that he would have from all the 70s authentic translations. Now, what happened here is that the Talmud tells us of a miracle, a divine inspiration through which each of the 70 sages made 10 changes to the actual translation and they all wrote it the same. Now, I'm going to share with you just the first of those 10 changes, which is on the first three words of the Torah that we are discussing. Now, from the words, Bereshit bara Elohim, which literally reads, Beginning created God. 
East Sage knew that this could be misinterpreted as there was something called beginning. And this beginning created God. And thus they all reorganized the words in which it said God in the beginning created. Now the question I have here is why did God not do it the way the sages did it? Why would God leave an opening for such a horrific fundamental mistake that God was created rather than always having existed? So the answer will be understood from a teaching of the Holy Baal Shem Tov. Now, the Holy Baal Shem Tov gives the following definition to the first three words, which leads into the rest of the verse. Bereshit, which we know means in the beginning. It can also be translated as primary. Thus he says, Bereshit, the primary purpose and mission of creation, is... Bara Elohim. Now the word bara means create, but bara also has the mystical meaning of revelation. Thus the Baal Shem Tov says, Bereshis, the primary purpose and mission of God creating the world is that we should come along and bara Elohim, reveal the divinity, the hand of God within the glove throughout all of the heavens and the earth. Thus we have over here a really beautiful concept to why God worded it specifically that way. Now, how do we do this? So I shared before that there are three different levels of concealment, the three different interpretations to the word Bereshit. So therefore, we have the three services of Torah, study, mitzvot observance, and prayers. And through this, we'll be able to reveal, transform the opaqueness of the shield of Elohim to be able to have the revelation of the infinite light of Havaya and simply see God in our daily life in all of creation around us. Now, within these three services, the primary process of transformation of the opaqueness of the concealment is the third one. It is through the sacrificial offerings in the Holy Temple, which today manifests itself in prayer. So therefore, I want to go ahead and not talk about just the process in the Holy Temple. The process in the Holy Temple, why this was the primary service on a spiritual level, is because this is the service, unlike Torah study, and even more than the mitzvot observance, this is the ultimate service of taking the physical animal, the physical flower, the physical wine, the physical oil, and bringing it onto the level of spirituality on the fire of the altar. However, what I want to focus on is its metaphorical spiritual meaning in the microscopic world, which is the individual human being. What is the process of the sacrificial, the sacrificial offerings as it stands within us? And now, I want to just share how this plays itself out in the microscopic world. 
So the human being in Kabbalah is defined by having three concealments. There is the corona of the skull above the brain. This represents as the concealment from the power of will to the intellectual paradigm. Then we have what we call in Kabbalah the concealment of the tightness and the narrowness of the neck in between separating between the intellects of the brain and the emotions of the heart. Then there is the third concealment which is the diaphragm which separates from the respiratory system and the digestive system. Now what this means simply is that within the power of will of every human being lies this innate infinite will to be one with God and to live and bask within the will of God and the light of God. To be good. It's an innate will. However, there is a concealment between that powerful will, innate will of the human being to the intellectual paradigm which struggles, may struggle with atheism, may struggle with many things in which it's focused more on the egocentric I as the center of the universe rather than God, the theocentric God being the center of the universe. And then even from the paradigm, the intellectual paradigm of the mind, there is the concealment between what we're capable to perceive and what we're willing to feel. And then lastly, even on the level of what we're comfortable in feeling, there is a concealment between what I internally feel and how I physically, the digestive system, physically live my lifestyle. Now, the service is to be able to do what the Baal Shem Tov calls the Bereshit Bara Elohim, meaning bringing to the, the revelation from the power of, power of will within the soul, all the way down to dominate through the paradigm, to dominate through the emotions, and to become a practical way of living. That's what the deeper meaning of all of this is in the simple, deeper understanding of why God created the world the way He created it. Now, I want to talk for a moment about the power of wine. Why? Because one of the things that took place with every sacrifice in the Holy Temple was the libation, the wine libation. Now, what does the wine libation mean in the microscopic world? So I want to share with you a verse found in the book of Judges, which says as follows, Wine, which causes God and man to rejoice. There's something about wine that brings joy, not only to the human being, but the verse says, even to God. And it's referring to the wine libation. Now, the mystical reason of why wine causes joy is because wine is all about revealing that which is hidden. Number one, in the very process of making wine, wine is hidden. It's not gathered within the grape the way oil is gathered within the olive, but rather its property is that the wine is actually hidden within the very flesh of the grape. So it is totally hidden. 
the process of making wine is to reveal that which is hidden. Which is why, on a mystical level, it's within the nature of wine to do the same to he or she which drinks it, to bring out the secrets. As the Talmud and Erevin quotes when it talks about the process of prayer and wine, and it says over there, Nichnas Yayin, Yetze Yesod, wine enters, a secret emerges. And thus the joy of wine, according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, is that that which is hidden reveals itself. And so it is for God and for human, as the verse stated, wine which causes God and man to rejoice. Now, let's understand this. By God, the manifestate the, this manifests itself in Havaya being the secret hidden within the concealment of Elohim, as we previously explained. And the metaphorical wine libation within the individual human, how I individually serve God by performing the metaphorical spiritual service of the wine libation of the sacrifices, is when the person through concentrative prayer reveals upon the altar of his heart the secret that God is everything and everything is God. Not only is the hand of God within the glove of Mother Nature, but that the very glove of Mother Nature itself is Elohim, a name of God, within which within shines the infinite light of Havaya. When we can reveal that truly everything is God and God is everything, one name upon the other name, and within the outer name shines the inner name, that is the process of bringing the hidden into the revealed, the subconscious into the conscious, the process of the wine libation, which causes joy for God and for the human being. And according to the teachings, being that God says in the verse, I am your shadow, thus truly God reacts to us. Meaning that by us within our own individual holy temple and body and physical life, when we do that wine libation of the concentration and meditation of seeing beyond the outer shell, but seeing the Havaya, the hand of God within everything, Thus, that is what causes the shadow movement of God then doing the same, experiencing the wine libation and revealing His hand within the entire universe. And how is this libation brought about within the human through his or her service of prayer? I spoke about the concentrative prayer, but I want to be more specific now. Wine is the experience of transcending the limitations of our, of our intellectual comfort zones. Now, intoxication, it's all going to depend upon the person drinking. I have witnessed people drinking, saying l'chaim, and, you know, just getting, losing the, the parameter of intellect and even beautiful emotions, dancing on the table, but they've lost the power of the intellect. Then I've seen really great teachers really saying L'chaim and Fabrengin, and the more they said L'chaim, the deeper 
the refiner and the more abstract the teachings to which they took us to. It kind of was like through their saying L'chaim, they shed the coarse human egocentric paradigm of intellect and truism and was able to take us to a more refined abstract truism. Thus, we talk about the power of wine, the power of intoxication being to take us past the coarse comfort zones of our physical human intellectual intellectual paradigms. Now, let's talk about how this plays itself out in the service of prayer. So, wine is the trans experience of the limita of transcending the limitations of our intellectual comfort zones. Thus, in the Shema, we have three types of love. And the verse tells us that you shall love God your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, the way Kabbalah and Hasidus explains it, the love God with all your heart and all your soul are logical levels of love which with we are very comfortable. It is built upon the concentration and the meditation of the verse in Deuteronomy, and I quote to you, to love the Lord your God, for He is your life and the length of your days. Yeah, I love God. God is my life. I love myself. I love life. Thus, I love God. That's a comfort zone. However, the love of with all your might in the canals of Hasidus represents a love that transcends any intellectual comfort zone. Why? Because it is in which all we want is to leave go of our finite mortal beingness and to return into the bosom of the essence of God. Now this is brought about through the service of wine libation, through an intoxication that rises us up beyond the comfort zone of our egocentric mind in which we are the center of the universe. Thus, the primary soul of the wine libation of prayer service is humility and self-negation. I am not the center of the universe upon which everything revolves, through which we can then experience a love beyond the human comfort zone, the love of with all your might. It's not about me. It's not about God being my life, my length of my days, but rather it truly shifts from me to God. Thus, wine libation, intoxication in this level is all about being able to get beyond our nose, to get out of self, out of the egocentric mind's perception of reality that I am the center of my universe. Now, let's take this one step further. The road to experiencing this passionate, infinite love of God is by first contemplating on how even though our soul is truly a piece of God above, which basked in the light of God, however, presently, our soul has descended into the furthest distance from God, into the absolute opaqueness of the concealment of Elohim, in which we live in a rebellious life of darkness against God. Now, our soul is in a state of being, 
vacant. Remember that word from Jonathan talking to David. From its place before and within God. And it is specifically through feeling this humility of distance, separation, and being vacant that we are remembered. Which means that we can build, overflow, and explode with the infinite love of with all your might. As they say, distance makes the heart grow fonder. Now, this is the deeper secret of our Haftorah, of the Machar Chodesh, in which it is revealed that the very root of being remembered is the same root of being vacant. Why? For it is precisely through the humility of acknowledging one's vacancy that he is then blessed to be remembered. This is the secret of King David's eternal kingship. In his being humble, remember King David is the moon, in his being humble to put aside any of his own light, but rather to allow himself to be but a reflection of God's sovereignty. So too, this is the secret of Bereshit bara Elohim, of revealing the light of God within each and every creation and experience of the heavens and the earth in our lives, not from a self-serving perspective, but from selfless perspective of service to God and to mankind. This is what is called in the recovery, it's the recovery prayer of God. Please reveal to me your will for me and grant me the strength to carry it out. When that's what we see in the heavens and the earth of our physical life, that it's all about God's will and for me to carry it out. Thus, we have the fulfillment of the Baal Shem Tov's teaching, Bara Elohim. We will bring a transparency and a revelation of God in every aspect of our life. In closing, we now see that the bliss of ignorance is the shameful bliss of being able to live a self-centered life with no rejection from our conscious. YOLO is the cry of this bliss. You only live once, so make sure to extract every possible experience of pleasure, personal gain, fame, wealth, and power. The challenge is to give up living a clueless, blissful life and to face the true beauty and joy of knowledge which brings with its responsibility and accountability. The true joy to God and to man is when we can experience the selfless intoxication of a wine libation in which God and not us become the center of the universe and thus being of service to God and to all of God's creations is where true joy lies. Thank you.